Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Landry Ayers. And I'm Natalie Dalzicki. War. What is it good for? War is hell. It is the young dying and the old talking. But there was one TV show that was able to show the horrors of war, incisively critique it, but still inspire compassion for those affected by it. Joining us to discuss the American television classic that is MASH, our senior fellow at the Cato Institute and managing editor of Regulation Magazine, Tom Fiery. In MASH fashion, I say yo. Senior fellow and director of Econ Lib at the Liberty Fund, Amy Willis. Hello. And accomplished actor, as well as writer and director of one of the episodes we'll be talking about today, Captain BJ Honeycutt himself, Mike Farrell. Hi. Nice to be with you. Thanks. Uh, thanks all for joining us today. So I'm going to start us off. MASH may not have been an instant success, but we all know that when the finale aired, it shattered television records with 106 million people tuned in. Mike, Amy, Tom, why do you think MASH resonated so well with the audience throughout the 70s and 80s? And po- possibly give us some reasons why it may resonate today as well. I think Gene Reynolds, who was the essentially the creator of the show, or he and Larry Gelbart created the show and ran it for most of its existence, um, was uh, was really on the money when he said that MASH was the perfect existential um, uh, existence or, or the, the representation of, the, of the, an existential existence. As he said, people, you know, not everybody went to war. Not everybody put on a uniform. Not everybody really had the kind of personal experience to understand what went on in Korea, what happens in war. But he said, everybody understands on some level, having to be away from loved ones, making a sacrifice that takes you um, away from the people and the places you'd rather be. Um, And he said, uh, he thought it was that aspect of the show beyond what the benefits of watching it were that um, that caught so many people's attention and and really embrace if i could hop in um i think a few things mash had going for it uh one thing that maybe younger generations i've i recently hit the the half century mark but one thing that uh younger generations don't appreciate so much is how much at the time mash debuted and and the you know for much of its run, uh, the Vietnam experience overshadowed so much of U.S. policy uh, and, and its outlook toward toward government, toward war. Uh, you know, if you watch the show today compared to contemporary television, it's so much more cynical, uh, uh, so much more biting in its satire of war makers, uh, of the horrors of war. So that was one thing it brought in. And, and the other thing I think that brought in, and and this isn't to... Uh, suck up to our guests, but it's actually very true is one thing that makes great television is to first of all, have great characters and then put great actors behind them to to bring them life. And it's amazing throughout MASH's run. And it went through a number of actors, a number of of characters, uh, just how each one just lined up right behind the other that, that Mike followed Wayne Rogers, that uh, uh, Jamie Farr in a sense succeeded Gary Berghoff, uh, 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 you know, it's just it's amazing the talent that went into that show, both writing it. You know, that's the other amazing thing is if you watch the episodes, who the writers were and what they then went on to do, you know, other shows, other 
you know, great shows in uh, American TV. So many of the writers, you know, did MASH and some of them started with MASH. It's just stunning the talent that went into that show. Yeah, I would second. I'm, I'm about to join Tom and said uh, aforementioned club. And I think, um, you know, Vietnam certainly was was on our minds as we were watching it. Um, and it's true about the characters. I mean, we loved you guys. I mean, you know, we felt like we knew the people who were on the show. And, you know, Tom mentioned satire, but I think, you know, we'd be remiss not to talk about the importance of humor. I mean, what a powerful instrument that is, particularly when it's applied to something as profoundly unfunny as war. Yeah, and I also think MASH struck quite a balance between comedy and then also getting to like the important heartfelt moments. And I think we can all acknowledge that it's been one of the best uh, TV shows to, to ever be on TV. And also that it inspired a lot of other um, a lot of other shows after that. But do you do you all remember there being any type of backlash from the show from people maybe uh, in the military or uh, people who supported the military? I haven't found much backlash in my research, but I have to imagine there was some sort of some sort of m- maybe audience group that thought maybe the show was too critical of war. Do you guys recall any s- type of backlash? Or maybe someone that thought it was making light of the people that were overseas or something like that. I, I mean, I can only imagine today what someone would would view a, a show kind of like MASH that tried to show very humanely what people on the ground would be going through and trying to cope with a world like that over there would be in a comedic light. How some people might not necessarily be in on the joke, even if it is, uh, you know, trying to be uh, positive about that. In fact, we uh, we did catch some grief from um, a couple of sources. One would be the officer corps, uh, the, the the higher up officers who who found our sort of um, uh, ir- impetuance, impetuance, <laughs> and impertinence uh, unacceptable. But everybody understood, I think. And for those who didn't, we could explain that. Uh, doctors who were in the military were not uh, your typical military trainee and didn't uh, didn't feel uh, in many instances the need to be uh, have the nose to the grindstone in terms of the military approach to things um, and the other was um, periodically there would be uh, I remember two two um, and I don't know if they were connected or not, but two responses are the the studio brought down to us. One was a minister who was terribly offended by uh, a show we did <clears throat> in which um, I believe a character who was uh, struck um, mentally impaired by the uh, by the battle thought of himself as Jesus Christ. And uh, one minister was just outraged at such a thing. And at the same time, we got a um, uh, a message from a minister of another church in another part of the country who said the he thought it was a glorious episode, and he used it as the basis for a sermon to his congregation. So I thought oh, wow. that, that that was a pretty good uh, <laughs> pretty good demonstration of the breadth of our effect whether whether it's appeal or not it's it's funny you bring up uh you know that particular episode and and religion in general 
one of the remarkable things about the TV series MASH is how much it departed from its predecessors, the novel uh, MASH, a uh, novel of three army doctors and the movie MASH in its portrayal of religious figures that, you know, in, in, in them, they were shown as, as hypocrites and, and lampooned. Um, but the TV series significantly recast the church, or I'm sorry, recast the camp's chaplain, uh, Father Mulcahy, as this wonderful, uh, uh, wise, tender-hearted uh, person. Uh, you know, you, Bill Christopher, who played him, was was that seemed to be that very much as a person. And Mike, I'm sure you can talk to that. Uh, I think I, I've heard uh, Loretta Switz say that she thought his portrayal of Father Mulcahy actually brought people to the church. I think that's very true. He very much embodied this this wonderful, wise. Uh, person who could both appreciate the divine and and, and the uh, you know and and the very uh, secular and communicate between both of them and and you know again he was just this wonderful voice of wisdom in the show. I think that's right, Bill. There was a wonderful simplicity and sincerity in Bill's performance that really captured uh, people, it captured their attention, and it. I, I think for many people, he was the sort of um, image of what a minister or priest or religious leader can and should be. Mike, I was just kind of curious um, why you took this role and kind of how you were inspired to uh, portray your character and kind of just like a little bit of the, the foreground to why, um, why you jumped on the MASH cast. <laughs> sure. Um, it's a longer story than you may, than you may have time for, but, uh, I, uh, I was under contract to Universal Studio at the time. I had just done finished doing a, um, series with uh, Anthony Quinn, which was a wonderful experience for me as an actor and as a person. Um, and, uh, a friend who was in the casting department told me he was leaving to do a show at 20th Century Fox and I, we bid a farewell and thought no, no more about it, except um, shortly thereafter, well, I suppose months thereafter, <clears throat> I was uh, in uh, meeting a friend. Uh, I picked him up at his apartment. And as we were, uh, I, I said, let's go. And he said, wait, 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 I, I have to finish watching the mash. And I said, what's that? And he said, it's this <laughs> show that I've been watching. He, I, I looked at it, and the scene that stayed will always stay with me, I believe, is uh, Gary Berghoff, Radar, in a scene in which he was, he was uh, demonstrating his extraordinary talent, but he was depicting this guy, this kid, this totally innocent, wonderful, sort of sweet boy in the midst of this insanity of war where bombs were bursting and people were dying and wounds would need to be bound. And I thought, my God, what a wonderful, wonderful thing is this, is this show. It's, uh, I, 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 I was just entranced by it. And a year later, <clears throat> I was, uh, invited to do, to, to buy a producer at the studio because I was, as I said, under contract. He, he's had a show that he wanted me to, to play the lead in. And I said, could I read the script? And he said, sure. And he gave me the script and I read it and I just didn't like it. It was silly. 
what, what I think of as a joke show, and we, we all know those, you know, three jokes per page, um, <laughs> and, and no mind involved. So I went back and I said, thanks, but uh, no thanks, it's not for me. And he, he said, you're, you're turning down the lead in a television series? And I said, uh, yeah, I am. And he said, Why? And I didn't want to say, well, it's a dumb show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> your script is stupid. I, 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 so I said, well, it's not MASH. And, and what I meant what was just referring back to that scene I'd seen. Uh, what I meant was it's not about anything. Uh, you know, that's, there's a show on the television today and it's doing okay. And it's about something. So for me, it was just sort of that this this uh, symbol out there and the year after that um or shortly after that i guess my agent called and he said uh, wayne rogers is having some difficulties with his contract with the studio and uh, the studio called and wanted to know if you'd be interested in coming over uh in the event to meet with them in the event he leaves and i said would i God, yes, I mean, sure. but, but, but can I? I'm under contract here at Universal. And my agent said, oh, a meeting is not going to hurt. And, and uh, to make it longer than it should be. But at any rate, that was resolved. And then the next season I read in the paper that Wayne again was, that was their second season, just third, third season of the show. I read again that Wayne Rogers was having difficulty with the contract negotiations and wasn't sure he was going to stay with the show. And I thought, gee, I wonder, I wonder if that'll happen again. And sure enough, it did. I got, <clears throat> excuse me, I got a call uh, from my agent. They wanted to know if I'd come and meet Larry uh, Gelbart and Gene Reynolds and uh, Bert Metcalf. And I said, yes, if I can. <laughs> and he said, you can. So I went and, we had this wonderful meeting. I, I told them how much I adored the show. And I, I, you know, I had done, by that time, I had done two television series and three, a couple of years on a soap and a, parts in films and stuff. But I was just nervous as a cat. And uh, not because I couldn't do the work, but because I was in the, in the company of some people who were just, for me, the, 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 the responsible folks for putting on what was extraordinary television. And I, they asked me if I had any questions. I said, well, the one thing uh, is that if you're talking about a guy who's going to come in and play Trapper John, simply just replace the actor, I really wouldn't be interested in doing that. I, I don't think there's a future for me or the show uh, with that. And they said, oh, no, no, of course not. We, um, you know, it's a, first of all, it's a military situation, so people pet, uh, People leave, people are transferred, all sorts of things can happen. What we have in mind is a guy who's not um, the same type as was uh, Trapper and is Hawkeye, the kind of womanizer and the kind of constant uh, um, party party guy. Uh, he's married and he's going to have a child at home and he and he's going to be a you know a straight up citizen. That I said. And they said, well, does that interest you? And I said, are you, are, are you suggesting would I be interested in portraying fidelity on national television? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And, uh, I, you know, I went away thinking, oh, God, I don't know how many people they're going to meet but for this role, but I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to have been there, and I hope I have a shot. I got a call to come back for a, a um, screen test, and they said, this is not a screen test to see if you can act. We know that. But it's a screen test with Alan to see what the chemistry is. And, and I, I know there were two other actors who were invited for screen tests as well. So I went and uh, did what I could and <laughs> left thinking that I was an idiot. And um, <laughs> I, I remember sitting in the car, sitting in my car after the test thinking, Mike, Mike, it's a comedy. You might have thought about trying to be funny. <laughs> anyway, I, I went home and uh, a day later got a call that they wanted me so the rest is history i was gonna say if i could recommend to listeners who have, are not familiar with the series uh the transition from the end of season three which is when mclean stevenson and wayne rogers their final episode the very last episode abyssinia henry through Mike's first episodes, which is, I believe, called Welcome to Korea, uh, which it was an, an hour long uh, episode. And then uh, to Harry Morgan's first episode, which I believe was called Change of Command, uh, the third episode of season four. If you watch those four, you get this wonderful, basically, uh, sampler of what MASH throughout its entire 11 year run is as far as you know the comedy of the first few years and and the wonderful work of both uh uh Wayne Rogers and and McLean Stevenson but then you know the the more three-dimensional characters of uh of of Mike's character BJ Honeycutt and Harry Morgan's uh, uh Colonel Sherman Potter uh, it, it's just you know for me whenever someone asks me you know I, I want to get into Mash a little bit those are the the four episodes and and they're right one rat after the other so you know it's it's like modern day you can you can uh, binge watch the four <laughs> and you will completely be wonderfully uh, submersed in mash Alan Alda has actually said before that what what he thinks made the show so successful and what was essential to how it connected with the audience was that while the characters and and the show itself was there to entertain they weren't just comic characters just there to amuse you they were obviously very funny it it probably had three jokes on a page uh, on on a screenplay if you actually were to count them up as as mike was joking about but that the production and the writers and the actors and everything had a loyalty to the reality of the situation of people at war um and and those uh, in those situations how how did that happen how did you go about that mike in in the production you know through whether it was via the writing process for uh, an episode that you wrote for instance like death takes a holiday or uh, acting in any of them and i after that perhaps maybe tom and amy can talk about how that perhaps impacted the audience um, and where they saw that in the legacy of the show. Sure. Well, first thing, I, I, um, I was in the Marines. Um, I served in uh, Okinawa um, in Japan. Uh, in the 50s, fortunately for me, it was between Korea and Vietnam, so I didn't serve in combat. Um, uh, so I had some, some experience of the military. Um, 
And secondarily, or no, primarily, actually, Gene and Larry and the, the staff of producers and uh, those behind the show did a tremendous amount of research. They talked, they saw it, well, they went to Korea, they checked out the 8055, I think, which was really the, uh, the actual mash that uh, Dr. Hornberger uh, served in. And um, they looked up and interviewed as many nurses and doctors and um, military men who, are, who had been treated in the mash and got stories, I mean, the, the stories abounded about Korea and about the way in which these things happened. So they were able to draw on extraordinary things. But I, I think a piece of it was that um, I, I was um, involved after, I've forgotten what, I think probably the first year I was in on the show, maybe the second, I was in... Um, I, I traveled out of the country. I, I traveled to Australia and I traveled to uh, some areas in that region. And I was astounded by the the response that my presence evoked. People talked about the show and how much it meant and how much, how extraordinarily touched they were by it and how meaningful it was to them. And I remember coming back and um, the first day of a new season, we had used, we had a few months off between each season. And I sat down with Alan and I said, are you hearing what I'm hearing out there about the impact of this show? And he said, yeah, he said, I am. And the, uh, I think we, we then, we had a tendency on the show to sit around with the other actors. We would sit together in a group instead of going back to our dressing rooms. One of the wonderful things about the group on that show was we all cared about each other and about the show and, so we'd sit and talk and come up with ideas and um, it just sort of generally um, enjoy each other and ourselves. Uh, and we talked about that, about this feeling that there was something special going on in terms of the relationship with the audience. And I think what happened was we all kind of dug down, if you will, to make it the feeling, a feeling a kind of, responsibility to make it as meaningful and as deep and as authentic as we possibly could. And I think the, I think the, the result of the show is, uh, is, a is a demonstration of that. So to me, uh, if I may, I think, um, one of the biggest things that the show did, and this, this goes back to, um, Tom's comments about Vietnam, and I'd be really interested to hear from Mike as a veteran as well. I mean, I think at the time we really had um, changing feelings about the military and about war. Um, you know, you have in my own family, for example, right, uh, we have my grandfather, a volunteer fighter pilot in World War II. Um, and then you go to, you know, my dad, who was drafted for Vietnam and the characters in MASH who are drafted to go to Korea. And people were angry um, and not necessarily in favor of those military actions as they were in the cases of the world wars. So it gave people, I think, uh, and, and me a means by which to reconcile opposition to a war or to a particular military action with um, the sort of notions of duty and honor in the military and be able to respect the military at the same time you might not uh, 
respect or be in favor of a particular military action. Um, I think part of that is the humanizing, uh, the humanizing role of the series. Um, but again, I think the satire and the humor were, were part and parcel of that, that you could say, you know, it's okay, um, to be sort of anti-draft, um, or anti-military and still, um, uh, be dedicated to duty in your service. I think that's right. In, in, in essence, uh, I, w- I always argued though, <clears throat> excuse me, that the, um, with, to the people who said we were anti-military, that we weren't anti-military. We, we were we were anti anti-dogmatic authoritarianism and craziness on the part of the, the superiors. <clears throat> We've done we did shows about superior officers who would send kids off to be in in a in a hideous uh, uh, bloodbath and and be cut to ribbons and coming be sent back to. Uh, to us to heal so that we could fix them up and send them back to do more war. So that was a, that was a constant uh, struggle with us within the show, but there was no, uh, uh, there are two things I want to say about that. One, there was no, never an intent to say we were to, to be anti-military. We thought that the military had a purpose and it deserved respect. We just thought it was, um, too authoritarian at some instances and too uh, irresponsible in other instances. And we wanted to be able to call, call it like we saw it. And the other piece, um, I got a, I got a letter yesterday from a woman who had written me uh, and talked about her father who had been in Korea and how he, um, he wouldn't, would, would never talk to her would never talk to his family about his experience in the war until MASH came on the air. And they watched it together. And it opened him up to be able to discuss what his experience was of being in that horrific situation. And she thanked me as if I had had, you know, (laughs) something to do with it extraordinary uh, change in her father, but the gratitude that she expressed and and the gratitude that he expressed uh, to her um, for that was uh, something I'll never forget. I was going to say, you know, talking about the respect your show showed to the military, I've always thought Sherman Potter, uh, Harry Morgan's character that, that came in in season four, really indicated that respect, that he was, uh, the character was career military. He was career army, uh, but he represented what is, what can be honorable and, and wise and respectable about the military as, and you would often in his episodes contrast him with people who didn't represent the honor and integrity that the military uh, strives to represent. Uh, but also you would, you know, he would refer to friends of his who also, we're, we're this honorable person. It's, it's very much like William Christopher's father Mulcahy in that you're, you demonstrated this wonderful character uh, who represented these ideals as opposed to others that, that you were criticizing because of the mistakes they made individually. Yeah, but I think that's quite right. Uh, Harry was, you know, the, the, the parallels are never fail <laughs> to, to ring my bells. The, Harry was a, a highly regarded and highly esteemed actor 
And the idea that I was going to be able to work with him just thrilled me. Um, and I think everybody in the cast felt the same way. And then when he came in and was who he is or was, we fell in love. Uh, he was just a, a darling man. Alan Alder once said, there is <laughs> about Harry, he said, there's not an unadorable bone in his body. <laughs> <laughs> He was just he was just a thrill um, to be with, and I will tell you. Somebody sent me just recently a clipping of a the um, we had, we did a it was a big deal as you suggested earlier in your introduction when we did the final episode, and um, the day the show ended, uh, there were this, the sound stage was filled with. Uh, camera crews and reporters and journalists and what have you, people from all over the world. So it was really kind of a circus. But afterward, we had a press conference. And Harry got up and said, I have been in over 100 films and eight television series. And he said, walking away with from seven of them was no problem. This one will never leave me. He said, I have, I have worked with many, many groups of actors. And this is sort of self-serving of me to say, but this is what he said. <laughs> I, I've never, I've worked with many, many different groups of actors and I've never worked with a finer, more talented, more intelligent, more caring group of people than I have worked with on this show. And I think that just goes to show, like you were saying earlier, Mike, how much heart the show had and the cast really, really caring about the message and the purpose. And I think I think we would be remiss not to mention. So for this uh, episode, we we watched a, a variety uh, for this recording. We watched a variety of episodes from MASH and we decided to um, to watch Death Takes a Holiday. And in that in that episode in particular, uh, there were quite a few quotes that got me, um, or got me my, or my heartstrings pulling out my heartstrings. And, um, the one, uh, quote from that episode that I wrote down is if, if we delay it long enough, uh, referring to the soldier who was dying on Christmas, um, his kids won't have to think of Christmas as the day their daddy died. Um, and I thought, I thought that was just such a, such a moving line. And also I think probably had the ability to really uh, move the audience. And I was wondering uh, from Mike, since you were a writer uh, for this particular episode, and then from Amy and uh, Tom, what kind of, what kind of emotions did it take to, to record and to film this episode and to, and to write it? And then from Amy and Tom, like, what did you feel as you were watching this episode? Like what struck you the most? Well, for me, it's. Uh, I believe that, um, I, and I, I'm not sure that I'm correct, but I think that episode, the idea for that episode, came out of the research. I, I think the actual mm -hmm. that actually happened, or something like it happened. Um, if not, it was the genius of some of these uh, writers who were uh, just amazing. Um, <laughs> but. Um, you know, when you deal with something like that, when, when, as an actor, I, I can say, when you deal with something like that, you feel you have a, 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 a responsibility that goes far, far beyond what you look like and what you sound like and what mm -hmm. you 
um, you know, whether or not you remember your lines and all the things that some actors can worry themselves with. But we, we created a reality that was very much a reality. Um, and when we got into those situations, it, 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 it took a toll, I will say, but it was a, it was one happily, happily given. We just felt like this was, this was something that we owed to the people who had had this experience and to the people who under, who were related to those who had this experience. And, um, we have to do it justice. This episode really gets to me. I, I admit, um, so I'm, I was really glad to revisit this one. Um, and thanks, Mike, for being willing to talk about it. Um, first and foremost, I think for me is the role of the refugee children, the orphan children in the story. Um, just kills me every time, right? And really drives home the reminder that war has effects on people far beyond the, the military folks involved. Um, you know, it just, when they, when they bring them in and they're afraid of, of the soldiers and afraid of the uniforms and, you know, they, they just don't know what to do with all of the good things that are happening. Um, and then second, um, I spend a lot of time working and thinking around philanthropy. So uh, Winchester's role in that one is particularly interesting to me, you know, that where he, where he gives the chocolates um, to the, to the orphanage and they sell them for rice and cabbage. Right. Um, this this means a lot to me. I, I actually now am showing this to our interns as as one of our lessons on philanthropy this episode. So um, it's, it, oh, it shall good. it shall continue. <laughs> that is wonderful to hear. Thank you for that. David did such wonderful work in the show. God, I I, I adored the man. He was uh, he was one of a kind. I, I just want to say I I share your um, your feelings about the, the refugee situation. Aside from the fact that we have a horrific one in, in facing us today, but uh, I have been working with an organization for many years, uh, Concern America, which is a refugee aid and development organization, and I've been in to too many refugee situations in Africa and in Asia to, uh, to see the work that these people do is, uh, and the need for the work is uh, heartrending. Yeah, if I could chide Mike just a little bit uh, the I think what you wrote you wrote five episodes or four episodes and you directed uh, five or four episodes uh, and you you committed a, a cardinal sin of writer actors which is you kept giving wonderful lines to your to your fellow actors instead of yourself and uh, <laughs> death takes a holiday you know so many just beautiful lines that you you gave to your others uh, uh, you know to L Loretta with the the talking about what death brings, you know, when the soldier finally died and, and that you failed to, to keep him alive past Christmas. Uh, the, the entire final scene between uh, David Ogden Steyer's Winchester and Jamie Farr's Klinger, uh, you know, is just, you know, to put that entire story, uh, first of all, in David Ogden Steyer's hands. I, I mean, for people who don't know him as an actor, I mean, David just could act. He was so, so good in that role. And this particular show, it's just every scene, you're almost welling up with tears as he finds, you know, one heartrending revelation after another. And he's so good at delivering on those. He was a genius, um, David. Um, and it was a great loss um, when he went. But um, every 
every step he took in the show. We, we, you know, Alan and I talked to, to the producers about it and, and to Larry, uh, Larry Linville, who played Frank Burns in the show for the first seven years, I think. Um, it, it, it got to, to a point where it was uncomfortable. We, you know, making fun of a, of a, an inept creep is one thing, but making fun of a, of somebody who's mentally ill is not funny. And, and we, Larry got to the point where he had, he said, I, I can't take this guy any further and, you know, maintain any kind of credibility. So he chose to leave. And Bert Metcalf, who was the genius who was our initially our casting director and then finally became the exec producer for the last couple of years, said, um, I'm going to bring a guy in who will be your, um, your match in the operating room and a, a very different foil for the two of you. Perhaps you're, you're going to reverse these, the, uh, the circumstances here when you have to deal with this guy, because the, the fellow we have in mind to play major Charles Emerson Winchester, the third uh, is uh, a quite extraordinary actor. And he was, oh man, my God, we, we all fell in love and embraced him and uh, we're thrilled to have him with, you know, sorry to lose Larry, but thrilled to have David come and join us. And he never, he never, never stopped thinking and never stopped working ways to make Winchester uh, real. Let's give a little bit of love uh, to Larry uh, Linville because the character was so hard to play that, that Frank Burns is very two dimensional and, you know, everything that I've ever read of, of Larry and when I've seen him pop up on other uh, uh, TV shows, he's, he's such a good actor and he, you know, I'll put it a little bit bluntly. He kind of sacrificed himself a little bit in that role. He apparently his older brothers, when he was growing up, would make fun of him for his his physical appearance and, you know, that, the, you know, his lips and his chin. And he offered them to the show as things you could say about Frank Burns to make fun of him. You know, ferret face, no lips, uh, no chin. I, you know, that's such a a courageous thing for an actor to do because those are things that I, I'm sure he was sensitive to. And he's such a wonderful comedic actor. The, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the wonderful scene um, where um, uh, he falls into the air raid pit that he had dug yeah. that, that your character uh, BJ Anacut had filled with water as a joke. Um, right. You know, it's just a brilliant little, you know, uh, just a brilliant piece of acting, just brilliant. But Loretta, I know has talked about Loretta said Swit has talked about, you know, all the little, you know, pieces of business that they would come up with on the side that just, you know, Larry's mind would just come up with these clever little bits and they would do it. And, and you, you would just get such last out. He was such a good actor. And again, he sacrificed himself, I think a little bit personally in order to deliver that character. And I can understand why he got tired of it uh, after, you know, several years. And, but I so am appreciative that he did all of that. I'm glad you said that because he he was he was brilliant uh, at what he did and and he was limited by the nature of the character and the circumstances they created for him. Um, but with it, it was it was hard, I must say, at times to to keep a straight face when we were dealing with him <laughs> because as as you said, he he had, he he had little gestures, little moments, little things he would come up with, and it was it was awful. How hard was it to keep from breaking 
on the set. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Oh, it's it, with, we, we loved breaking each other up. We, we did it uh, all the time. I remember, <laughs> I remember times I was li- literally lying on the floor laughing and, <laughs> and Bert, the, who was then directing said, <laughs> and Alan was crippled somewhere in a chair somewhere. And, <laughs> and uh, Bert said, children, children, we have to get this scene shot. <laughs> and we, we'd go back and give another try, but, oh, it was, it was, uh, the, it was an exercise in, in concentration, I must say, at times to, to get, to get through some of those situations and some of those lines. It's funny that Colonel Potter says children a lot in the scenes where um, (laughs) particularly Honeycutt and Hawkeye are are cutting things up and everybody's laughing and he's a children. (laughs) (laughs) And that's uh, Mike, thanks for sharing that story about uh, Linville's uh, choice about leaving that role. That's a really lovely story that I I didn't know. So thanks. Oh yeah, no, he, it was, uh, you know, that's a wonderful thing to see that sort of generosity, personal uh, appreciation and generosity in an actor because you know people compete to get those opportunities to play those roles and to say you know I've done it folks I've done enough I've done it as to the degree I can do it and I think we don't serve either my character or the show to continue uh, that's a very uh, extraordinarily generous thing to do Mike, one of the things you mentioned that you thought was was so strong about uh, the performance you were talking about was the reality that uh, they brought to it. Um, and one of the other episodes that we watched in preparation for this uh, was the interview, which is a really striking uh, example of one of the things MASH did so well uh, and I think was a, a sort of a pioneer for which was the momentary one-off sort of change of format for the show mm. where it, it mm. didn't resemble the the normal sitcom uh, or, you know, kind of format that the show normally did. It was as if it was a black and white on the ground documentary uh, interview series with all of the people. What was the goal of changing the format of the show for that episode and and what was what was filming that episode like considering you you really didn't have anyone to play off of uh, for either dramatic or comedic effect like you would have in a, a normal scene it was I, I i was struck immediately by the the genuine nature of the delivery of some of the 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 monologues present in the show, it, it feels almost improvised the way that, that how natural many of the performances were. Uh, uh, what was filming that episode, the interview like? That's an interesting observation. The, we did uh, uh, this, the, the, there's, there's a business aspect to this. The, the studio, the uh, network provided for 24 episodes a year and eventually, and the writers were just in the room cranking out things and coming up with that ideas. And they were exhausted by the end of the year. And inevitably the network would say, we, we want one more. And, <laughs> um, and Larry and Gene and Bert and the writers all sat around and said, what, well, God, what do we do this time? So they came to each of us. Um, Gene came to each of us with a little, um, 
uh, pad or, you know, uh, notepad. And he said, here's what I'd like to do. Um, I'd like each of you to take this question and write your answer to it in character or these, I should say these questions um, that an interviewer is going to ask you. And each of you write your own character's response to them. So in effect, we wrote our own scripts for that episode. Wow. I think it it comes off that way. It's, it's really striking. Yeah, it, it, it was, it was an extra, you know, it's one of the things that happened to the show. I'll I'll tell you a brief, if you have the time, I'll tell you a brief story. Uh, The first day I was there, we all gathered around the table and we were to read so that the writers could get a sense of the show and the timer, the script supervisor could get a timing. So we did, we sat, which was wonderful for me because I had not been on a show where we'd had that kind of experience of sitting and reading the show before you did it. And at the end of it, at the end of the reading, Gene, who was directing, looked up and he said, okay, page one. And I sort of looked at him. I was confused because we had just read the entire script. And he looked at me and he saw my look on my face. He said, oh, Mike, let me explain. He said, uh, this is when now we go through page by page and we want to hear from you guys as to what you think about certain things. If you have any questions, if you have any problems or any ideas. And I thought, oh, my God, I've died and gone to heaven. Somebody <laughs> actually wants to hear what the actors think. And, and that's, that's the way they work. Uh, it was it was it was such a treat to be part of that company because they honored the work and they honored the people involved in doing the work. They were extraordinarily generous. I came up one time with a I went to Burton. I said, I've got an idea for a story thinking they would take it and run with it. And he said, oh, great. Why don't you write it? And I said, well, uh, okay, I'll give it a try. And that was the beginning of my writing with the show. And then later on, a couple of years later, I said, Bert, I've been watching and I think I'd like to direct. And he said, great, I've been waiting for you to do that. So, I mean, that's, that's the way they worked. It was a creative community and everybody was respected. And it was just, I, I cannot tell you other than to say it was an extraordinary, extraordinary thing to be part of. Mike, you talk about how you know uh, the 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 read would lead to changes to the script. Uh, one change to the script wasn't just a change; it was a dramatic recrafting of the episode in a way that you know, for me personally, I think is absolutely wonderful and morally enlightening. And that was uh, your criticism of the episode that became preventative medicine. And would you be willing to share that story? Yeah, that that was a, a script that came down, and we sat down and read it, and it was something that came out of the um, uh, research I had mentioned earlier. There was a circumstance that had arisen in uh, the experience of one of these surgeons, and they did this. And it was essentially um, that there was a gung-ho officer who was sending – we were getting a lot of wounded kids in, and uh, this gung turns out this gung ho officer was sending these kids on to take this particular hill that was deadly as hell, and they uh, they just couldn't understand. We couldn't understand why we kept getting these kids. And then finally, the officer himself, the, some of the kids, told us what was going on. And the officer himself came down to uh, 
just strut around and say good, you know, give good cheer to his boys and tell him he wanted them back, et cetera, and so forth. And Hawkeye and I looked at each other in the script and said, this bozo needs to be taken down a step or two. So we uh, were to wind him and dine him, take him into the, the still, into the swamp and use the still and get him drunk and tell him he's sick and that he has to have an appendectomy and do take out his appendix and put him, take him off the line for a while so that some of these kids can get a break and this idiot doesn't get to send them off to be cut up again. So we read the script and uh, we got to the end and we got to that place where, as Gene said, you go through page by page. And I said, um, when we got to a certain page, I said, well, here's the problem, guys. BJ wouldn't do this. And they said, what do you mean? I said, we all know that cutting into a human body is a dangerous thing and you only do it when I mean, God knows we've learned that here, if nowhere else, that you only do it when it's absolutely necessary. And they said, well, yeah, but these guys did it in Korea. I said, I'm not arguing that they did it in Korea. I'm saying B.J. Honeycutt, the guy we have been creating here, wouldn't do that. And we, uh, Alan, Alan said, well, Hawkeye would. <laughs> 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 and I said, absolutely I, I absolutely, I get that the Hawkeye would. I'm just saying BJ wouldn't. So we had this, this discussion that went on for some 20 minutes or half hour. And finally, Bert said, you know what? We've got a better show here. And they rewrote the script so that we did all of those things. And then we got to the place where we got him drunk. And then Hawkeye said, let's go. And BJ said, no, no, you're not serious. And they separated. Hawkeye went in, did the surgery. BJ stayed in the swamp. And uh, Hawkeye came in and said it was healthy and looked great and it's no longer there. And uh, I said, how do you feel? And then there was Radar's voice saying choppers and more wounded came in. It was I thought it was really quite an extraordinary, for me, it was an extraordinary demonstration of their the care and thoughtfulness they took and the generosity and, and understanding my view of the character it's it's also an interesting juxtaposition because in the first season there is of course the episode the ring banger which same storyline you have a a very warlike uh recovering soldier and hawkeye and trapper decide to go ahead and give the unnecessary appendectomy and and you know Wayne Rogers' character Trapper has no problems with it. So it it's again shows the important difference between BJ and Trapper. And if I could just give a little bit of praise on the acting, the scene that you were talking about in the end, where where Hawkeye comes in and and you're told the the choppers are coming in, you know uh, Alan uh, Alan in character, you know says something to the effect of you know he just doesn't have the strength to go on, and he just kind of lifts his hand up. And you take his arm, you know, to, to, to gently lift him up so you can go, but also to give him comfort. And there's not very many words said in that particular beat, but it's such a beautiful scene, that physical gesture between the two of you. Uh, you know, I mean, just generally the, and it, one of the things that always amazes me is how much 
the different, uh, you know, work between the two actors, uh, you know, throughout the series, all the different actors delivers. And that's one of the most touching. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I let me confess that I can't talk about this show without tears in my eyes about half the time. Oh, <laughs> you're not the only one, Mike. <laughs> well, there was also speaking of just times in the show that I was I was really touched or like really made me think um, going back to to the interview. I don't even know if this was really meant to be like the most uh, most thoughtful line in 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 that uh in that episode but there were uh, there were quite a few that i wanted to point out uh there was one that i i can't remember who said it but uh they said i'm temporarily a misassigned civilian <laughs> for explaining <laughs> and that, that then um there that's bj yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i'm pretty sure yeah um and then there was there's some more thoughtful lines throughout that episode um, more of uh, this one was you have to use a mental anesthesia or you bleed for everyone who is bleeding. Um, but towards the end of the episode, this is after all the interviews have happened and it really kind of summed up um, the kind of the message you guys were trying to say in the show. Um, and I, I believe it's the interviewer is, is, is the voice of this. And it's like cutting back through um, a variety of different shots. And it says, now the people of this mash are doing the work that they do best, but that they would rather not be doing at all in a place they'd rather not be. And I thought that was really a, a fabulous way to, to end that episode and really got, got the, got me and I'm sure the rest of the audience thinking about um, kind of like what we talked about earlier, the, the duty to to help and the duty to uh, even though you may not want to you may not have wanted to be in the mash and you didn't want to get drafted as uh, comes in other episodes that we watched Klinger had said um, but it's this you put that aside and you you help the people that need your help um, and I really thought that episode kind of especially that line really summed it up sums it up very nicely thank you there, there was a, another wonderful line in that show Bill Christopher Father Mulcahy talked about. Being there in the OR on one of the icy nights, the freezing nights, and he said, "You see the surgeon cut, in, cut into a human body, and the steam warm their hands on steam that rises out of the body." And he said, "How can you, how can you see something like that and not be moved?" Thanks for listening. If you want more Mash Pop and Lock approved content, make sure to follow us on our Twitter handle at. Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock, with an E like the philosopher, Pod. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, as a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.